welcome CFE Research Podcast, a podcast that aims to showcase the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. There would be the colleagues who had never before identified themselves as academics. Um, and I'm not, I, I think the term academic is an interesting term um, because we could all call ourselves academics in this distributed academy of learning and FE and HE, but the people who don't identify as that sort of put their nose around the door and say, oh, you know, what's going on here? Or someone's asked me to come to this session. And then at the end of the process are saying, this is what I think, this is why it's important, this is why you need to listen to me. And by the way, I'm a researcher. Now, that's a, that's a whole switch in the way you see yourself. Hello, welcome to FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher-Saxon and my partner in crime is... It's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, fantastic. Yes. Well, uh, for this podcast, we are in the presence of Claire Collins, who has masses of expertise and experience to share with us about the world of FE research. So, uh, hi, Claire. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thanks, Joe and Alistair. How are you? Oh, yeah, we're good, and it's great, great to have you here. Right, we're going to get stuck in, and uh, Alistair's going to ask you uh, a ream of questions in an hour or two. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's important to to kind of set the scene. So first of all, just tell us a bit about you and your role, um, Claire, for us, if you can. So um, I'm an FE educator by trade, um, started out teaching adult ESOL and adult literacy in the late 1990s, and then found my way into research when I was doing my master's degree, and that was in adult literacy, numeracy and ESOL. And I found myself wanting to get in there in different contexts, like bus depots and uh, ESOL classrooms in women's centres and things, and really finding out what worked and why, and started to see myself as a bit of a researcher, even though I hadn't really formulated any understanding of what that meant at that stage. Um, then in later years, through the Skills for Life Improvement Programme, I started doing project work. Um, and in about 2003, I started working on a regional and national level, looking predominantly at adult literacy, but later at English and then broadly across the curriculum digital. And I found myself in different places. I've gone over to the Netherlands and helped them set up adult literacy initiatives and draw on research from around the English speaking world. So let's fast forward because there's always so much to say about your background, isn't there? But um, in 2014, with some of the colleagues, we picked up a contract and it was to run what was called then the Practitioner-Led Action Research Programme or PLA. And that ran for a couple of years and I got the bug. I got the bug for doing research with others and for supporting others to do research. And then that became what is now known and has been known for a long time as the OTLA programme, which is a title that we perhaps wear a little uncomfortably, but it's the it was the funded action research programme by the Department for Education um, from 2016 until 2021. Brilliant. And what was interesting was you you just said then and you got bitten by the bug. Um, and here we are with the podcast and uh, that book came for me from the OTLA programme anyway. So <laughs> really, you know, the, there's a lot for it. So I'm I'm interested. We're here really to talk about OTLA and its legacy. So tell us really about that. What happened there? 
So I think the Department for Education was keen through the Education and Training Foundation to give people opportunities to go through a research progression. I think that was the original idea that you would start out doing something perhaps in your own classroom and then you may progress on to do qualifications like master's degrees and PhDs and that you would be growing a generation of researchers that can help us to understand what works in FE and why, and, and actually also where, because the great thing about these kind of funded programs is that you'd have an engineering lecturer over here working out what works in assessment for learning in their context, and then over here a numeracy teacher trying to grapple with, I don't know, manipulative card activities and see what worked. So you'd get very grounded and context-specific research, and the ambition was then that we, I think the language now is we would be a self sustaining sector as a result. I problematise the idea a little of this being a ladder. I love the, um, the Scottish adult learning idea of everything being a big wheel and we fill in chunks of the wheel like trivial pursuits as we go through our life. And, and actually, as it played out over the years, we'd have people with doctorates doing action research and people who said, I love this. And the only place I ever want to take it is into my next class next week. And that was a wonderful, I think, and a wonderful and quite individual outcome. That makes sense. Yeah. So I guess that's that's really leading nicely into this next question that I've got here, which is what did success look like? for OTLA so uh, you said like taking it into the classroom I'm, I'm guessing really sometimes it's those simple small things that were still a success but what did that look like for you and, and that part of the program? The holy grail for me would be a teacher who came up with a challenge or a, a problem or something they just wanted to grapple through or who had been presented with good practice by an external body and instead of either rejecting it because it had come from outside or embracing it because it was experts that had said it, and instead of thinking, oh, yikes, how am I ever going to deal with entry threes and level twos in my classroom? I just can't do it. Could draw on some ideas of how to work this through for themselves. So they might say, oh, right, this idea of metacognition, I've heard all about it everywhere. It's really interesting. What does it really mean for my learners? I'm going to try this activity out, see if it works. And I don't know what the outcome's going to be. It might be that they remember better. It might be that they can internalize the ideas. But the point is that I've tried it out with my learners. So I know whether it's going to work here and now. So I suppose that's where it's different from social science research, where you set out to say, how best can I support learners with dyslexia who are studying maths? You know, what's the answer? Action research, a good outcome is when someone says, well, I found all these things out. Half of them were unexpected. But next time I'm faced with this, I know what I'm going to do about it. So it's as much about professional development as it is about, and I don't mean professional development, this is what you do, but it's as much about working out what's right for yourself as it is about saying, okay, I've got something I can publish now and share with the world. Here's an answer. But yeah, and, and you know, that matches my own experience because I think that there's as much I took away from being part of that process um, personally as well. So this is um, interesting. So I, 
we were talking the other day, Joe and I, about impact um, and, and what a strange term it is. And it's a really hard thing to kind of measure or, or keep record of. We're talking about this idea of a ripple effect because, you know, that sometimes we can do something and the ripples go on for quite some time. Um, so actually, I'm interested to know if you follow up and look at that impact further down the line or later on, the, the kind of longer term ripple effect of, of the work that you do. Is that part of what you do? The trouble with programmes is that they tend to be funded year on year. So at the end of one year, you find yourself just diving straight into planning for the next year. And I think that was actually something missing all the way through a long term evaluation. However, of course, we did. We noticed and we did our own evaluations and they would sometimes be we'd worked with a a team five years ago, four years ago. They'd come back on for another project and we said, gosh, you know, tell us the story of what's changed in your organization. And they'd say, well, we get opportunities now to do action research instead of impose CPD or I took this idea to the head of quality and the head of quality said it was brilliant. And because I had some evidence to back up what I was saying, took it to the board and we've got that as a way we work now. So a lot of it's really anecdotal, Alistair, and that's a shame in some ways, but it's a little bit like the impact of adult learning. You can quantify it. You can find people who've got quals, um, you could start to talk about, you know, learner achievement. Isn't that what we're all here for? But actually, it's so much longer than that. You know, when you take an adult through a program, it could be 10 years until they find that their child has been told something about their medical history. And if they haven't done that learning back then, they'd never have had the confidence to speak to the doctor in that way. And I think action research is a bit like that. What's really interesting is the stories of individuals that come through. So an individual who's taken part in the programme, who has been given responsibility and respect in their organisation, and then next time there's an opportunity to be a mentor, their organisation says, you can do that. And we say, oh, great. And then that person gets more and more confident and ends up taking on more responsibilities. And you can see the action research journey through their personal progression. That, that's a really interesting um, story. And, and we've got a colleague called Vicky who was project managing at the end and has started out as a participant on the programme. And it was just wonderful to watch that unfold, if you like. Uh, yeah, and I, I think actually that's part of that ripple, isn't it? It's that ongoing kind of thing that you won't really know the end, but you've got a capture of some of that impact that's going now. But I guess there's one thing that that you could probably pick out from here. And what I'm interested to know is what did you learn about the best ways to support teachers with practice-focused research from, from that uh, period of time running the OTLA? It's a heady combination of quite a few things. Um, on one hand, they, they've got to be supported. It's very hard for a teacher doing this without the support of their colleagues, their learners and their teams. So it's wise to think about the things that are troubling your organisation and align what it is you want to do, because that way things will be eased as you go through. Um, mentors are a really interesting part of this whole process because and, and we we found that the it was interesting we thought we needed mentors at first that were action research specialists and each year there would be a topic or two or three topics that the DFE had asked us to look at it could be digital could be phonics and um, maths 
And we thought, oh, we've got action research specialists. The participants are experts in maths forward slash digital, whatever we're talking about. Somewhere in the middle, they'll create learning together. What actually happened was very often it was the subject specialists who we taught how to support action research who became the best mentors because they were companions on the journey together. They would say, oh, I went to a conference the other day and I saw this really interesting stuff about teaching reading. Um, why don't you try that out? And we encouraged them to do that because we said, you know, there's no such thing as having to say, oh, this is my objective research and I'm not going to be influenced by someone else. That's just that, that just doesn't that just doesn't make sense. We're influenced by lots of things. So a mentor who knows their subject very well, who's also learning and developing their confidence in supporting action research creates a really um, uh, supportive program and helps those teachers to flourish. Right. And and it's quite clear here. And interestingly, we had this conversation just before we, we kind of came on to record and you asked about the visuals. It's really important to pick out just how animated and excited you are talking about all of this stuff, because I think that comes through. So I think it would be fair to to kind of pick out just to ask you what sort of highlights came from doing the OTLA as well. There, there's got to be one or two things. I mean, there'll be hundreds, I'm sure, but one or two things that really stick with you that stand out as well. There would be the, um, the, the professionals, sometimes wearing a kind of um, very vocational cloth, cloth. Oh, hold on. Um, let me try and say this in another way. There would be the colleagues who had never before identified themselves as academics. Um, and I'm not, I, I think the term academic is an interesting term um, because we could all call ourselves academics in this distributed academy of learning and FE and HE. But the people who don't identify as that sort of put their nose around the door and say, oh, you know, what's going on here? Or someone's asked me to come to this session. And then at the end of the process are saying, this is what I think. This is why it's important. This is why you need to listen to me. And by the way, I'm a researcher. Now, that's a that's a whole switch in the way you see yourself. So that was wonderful. The, the reason you heard me hesitating then is because I don't believe any knowledge is any more higher, higher up than any other knowledge. So I was busy creating a stereotype of somebody who, who is not a researcher. And, and actually... Sometimes it was those people who have read a lot and who immersed themselves in learning about new theories who said, I've spent, I've spent so long in books, I've forgotten to ask my learners. Uh, you know, and that's just, that's brilliant, isn't it? And my learners taught me that I wasn't pushing them hard enough. Or my learners taught me that these assumptions I had, I'll tell you a story. Um, and it's a colleague at Myersco College, uh, Rachel, shout out to you if you're listening. Um, and she had a, um, a perception that her learners were um, hated English and a brilliant idea about bringing authors in um, to do poetry and, and, and uh, other activities with learners. And when she spoke to them afterwards, they said, we had never hated English. We didn't want to be, uh, we didn't want our identities to be expressed in the way that we were expressing them because we didn't have the confidence to write in the way that felt like really like us. And this poet showed us we can write in any way we like and we can make beauty. And they made a book. 
I thought that was really amazing. That's um, that's an example of a teacher who had really changed her way of thinking as a result of the process of action research. Excellent. That's that's a great highlight. Um, um, some fantastic answers as well. I'll pass over to Jo because she's got some questions for you as well. But thank you for that. It's interesting just uh, uh, listening there. I think the the sort of theme there is about identity. Ident- yeah, identity shifts, either yeah, how people see themselves. And that is definitely coming through in my PhD research, the conversations that I'm having with people. So that's interesting. I've been scrib- furiously scribbling down some of the phrases you're using. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to make a nice sentence out of that. So the <laughs> distributed academy of learning, I like that. I'm going to use that one, Claire. Um Right. Okay. So um, as you got towards the end of uh, OTLA, one of the things that you gifted to the world of um, of FE was a fantastic guide for those that are new to being being a researcher or the act of, you know, conducting some kind of action research. So, you know, tell us a bit about that, what people need to know, where they can get hold of it, what they can get from it. So the guide is published on the uh, Education and Training Foundation's Excellence Gateway. And if you look for, um, oh, now, how to do action research should find you there. Um, forgive me, because I will share with Joe and Alistair afterwards, and you can put in the blurb the exact link. The idea was to try to create something which was um, highly differentiated in terms of the, our audience. We were mindful that some people would have been doing research for a long time and and in many ways, need to rethink their understanding of what action research means in FE, that it's not always about objectivity and it's not about finding the answer. Um, But for others, as you say, who've never done it before. So we took people through um, a process hoping actually that they might be doing their own action research as they go through the guide and shared as many anecdotes and uh, tips as we could from our learning on OTLA over the years. So there's lots of vignettes in there of teachers that hopefully people will be able to identify with. Um, it's We recognise that there are some corners of our sector where special consideration needs to be made. And the guide would have become enormous if we had tried to fit in so many things like what do I do if I'm a prison educator? And I'm not just thinking about uh, consent from my learner's point of view, but I've got to find out if the governor will support what I'm doing. And how do I think about safeguarding in, in those contexts? Or what do I do if I'm an ESOL practitioner and my learners are low level, uh, beginner, emerging speakers? How do I support them? What kind of research activities can I do? So we've actually created two accompanying guides, one for prison educators and one for ESOL practitioners. Um, So it's all freely available. And I'd encourage you to have a look and let us know if you think it's any good or we, we could adapt it. (laughs) <laughs> oh thank you so thank you for that yeah we'll make sure um, that we attach the link and things when we, when we put this podcast out so that's fantastic um so uh, taking a step back then looking at the the whole what we we sometimes call on here the fe research landscape or oh, actually people can't see but you'll be able to see that's my seascape fe research mm-hmm. seascape behind me um there's lots of um, actors, players in this space. There's lots of, you know, communities and so on. Um, what would you? What's your perspective of uh, the state of play for FE or for research in FE now? 
I think we've come away from the idea now, finally, that there's not enough research in FE, that I think we're starting to internalize the idea that there's a lot of us out there doing some really good work and we can speak for ourselves. Um, I think that there's different kinds of communities that people can join depending on what they need. It's really small ones where you can get together with a small group of people and, and talk about something you've read together, which might lead you to do some research to really large and established communities where there's structure, like research college group, where there's ethics boards and you can you can take your research as if you were going to a panel in the university, but actually it's FE practitioners who you're working with. And I think we need that diversity. It, it, we often said on OTLA, you get from this what you need and what you want. If you want to join an international community of action researchers, we'll help you find a place in CARN, uh, the Collaborative Action Research Network, or or honor <laughs> go, go and meet some people in Mexico doing action research. They might be doing it on you know, how to get food for villages in South America, but the principles of how to work with people will translate and you'll be inspired. Other people are part of small networks like Natakla have got um, an ESOL action research um, talking group. And they can really get under the skin of, okay, should we have translators? And okay, what are we learning about how best to support ESOL learners? So I think we need a plethora of communities and networks and I think we need to talk to each other wherever we can so we can help each other to grow yeah yeah oh uh preaching to the choir I think is that the thing is that the phrase yeah yeah absolutely yeah um, I'm, I'm already now planning a trip to Mexico there now just thinking <laughs> okay you you mentioned Khan and I was really uh, lucky and privileged enough to attend Khan this year so this year it was um, hosted by a college in Dublin so I was out there and I met some of your colleagues out there um do you, do you want to just tell us maybe a little bit more about about Khan and what yeah what makes Khan what they offer I, I mean I know a couple of things um and maybe yeah what what that offers that's different to maybe research college group or other things that you've mentioned? I think it's um, so into history that action research has been around for a very long time, including in post-16 education since the 1940s, I learned recently, and I didn't know that. So it's being able to speak with people who've been thinking about these things for a long time. Um, it's Finding a community who can do, help you sort through some of these sort of meta issues, like, you know, how, what is impact? You know, it, it, we can have conversations about impact with people who are in a lot of different disciplines, and that can really help to grow our ideas, sometimes away from education, so we can be fresh and think differently. Um, so, um, Khan is uh, international. Uh, it People come from Sri Lanka, they come from America to events. Um, it, um, it foregrounds classroom practices. So although I've said there's people from lots of different disciplines, um, there's a lot of encouragement for teachers to come forward and speak for themselves. I think that's important. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a chance sometimes to look differently on things. So uh, at conferences, hey, Joe, I'm sure you experienced it. People would ask you questions that might be received wisdom in the UK. You know, why do you do initial assessments? And you think, oh, 
I hadn't thought there was another way to do it. Mm. Or we're in a country where they don't have curriculum documents. How how do you cope? Yeah, I thought that's how it had always been. So it's um, it's a break away from the confines of one sector, and I think that's healthy sometimes. And it's a chance to meet people from all over the place, mm. and write you know, and get our writing honed. You know, we can write for journals like um, Khan's uh, Praxis, which is quite an informal writing space. Um, I'm I'm part of a network called Research and Practice in Adult Literacies, RAPAL. And we provide a journal for people writing about adult literacy, ESOL and numeracy. So it's a place to cut your teeth as well um, and get some confidence with your writing. Mm. And actually, while um, we were out there in Dublin, they circulated some information about um, communities being able to get a little bit of financial support to run um, days about writing for publication and so on, actually. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there is all sorts when, once you start digging, but people don't know what they don't know. And I keep, you know, I continually stumble upon some new facet or feature of, um, of the FE research landscape. Yeah. Okay. Um, right, we'll just we'll start to draw things uh, to a close, but with the with the final question, Claire, for you, which is what is next for you and and you, and Claire Collins Consultancy? The kind you know the kind of things that you are working on at the moment. So at the moment, we're running a national action research program in Scotland, um, and that's a, a really nice example of colleagues having come down across the border to see what we were doing and thought, oh, I wonder how that translates. And of course, it's a very different, um, a very different sector. Uh, it's not FE; it's the college HE sector, and so we're working out how the approaches that we used in England translate or don't to that different world. Um, and also starting to think about other pieces of work where we can bring an action research um, element to it. So if we're, for example, doing a coaching and mentoring program, how can we really understand what works and what doesn't? Sure, we've got loads of information out there about effective coaching and mentoring, but have we tested it out and have we explored other ways to do things? So for me, it's about not just seeing action research as programs that are funded specifically with that name on the can, but about it becoming part of everything we do. And, and, and we always saw OTLA like that. We'd always sit down and think, oh, God, what went wrong? What could we do differently? Help us understand what we can do differently. So that was kind of a big piece of action research as it went on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've been kept busy. That <laughs> It's good, good to know um, that you're not going to be disappearing uh, from our lives now that OTLA has, has sort of ended as it was. Um, right. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for spending some time with us, Claire. Oh, it's, it's always a pleasure. Um, thanks for asking me. Thanks very much. You have been listening to the FE Research Podcast, a Sheep Hill Studio production. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us again soon.